Father, as we come to your word once again this morning, we come as a people who need help. We see the words on the page. We can discern the grammar. We know what the words mean. And yet, Father, that knowledge would only go as far as our heads. And we need it to penetrate our hearts. We pray, In our study of Luke's gospel, we've seen the cross drawing ever nearer. And as the cross draws nearer, opposition to Jesus grows more and more intense. We're continuing to see that as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Let me read that for us. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And so we've been tracking along with Jesus as he is making his way to Jerusalem. We've seen him cast out a demonic spirit. And when he did that, the Pharisees accused him of accomplishing that feat by the power of Satan. When he was invited to lunch by a Pharisee, our Lord was being tested about his theological views concerning ceremonial cleansing. As the tension in the religious community mounts, the Lord takes his disciples aside and begins to warn them about the difficulty and the hostility that would come upon them then and in the days ahead because of their love and devotion to him. 
And in that context, our Lord begins to review for his disciples a number of situations that they are going to have to face. And with each, he gave words of warning as well as encouragement to these disciples in the hope that they would remain faithful to him, even to the point of their own physical death. The reality of the Christian life is that we live in a hostile world. And the question that we need to ask and the question that Jesus answers for us is how do we do that? How can we live day by day by day in a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ, to his people, to the church? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That as we begin to look at this, we find that there are thousands of people gathered together to hear Jesus. There are so many, and they are so crowded together that they are stepping upon one another. And yet, the very next thing that we read there in verse 1 is that he began saying to his disciples, first of all, which As a preacher, that gets my attention. Thousands of people have come to hear him, and he ignores them and speaks only and specifically to his disciples, to the twelve. It's an amazing thing. Should tell us something about the love and the concern that Jesus has for his church as opposed to the world. He's concerned for the world. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And he is calling his people out of the world. But his people, his sheep, his church, has a far higher priority for our Lord. That is why we are told to do good to all men, but especially who? Those of the household of faith. There is a priority there. And you see that here as we begin chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke. The scribes and Pharisees have become very hostile because the Lord has taken away their hypocritical masks These are those shepherds. These are those leaders that we just read about in Jeremiah. The ones that are not leading their sheep properly. And Jesus says that in the sight of God, their hearts are filled with robbery and wickedness. He has exposed them in the passages which we have already seen in chapter 11. He has accused them of losing their love for God and refusing to bring justice among the people. This has been the case in the leaders of of Israel all the way through from Old Covenant now into the coming of the king. They're still the same. Nothing has changed. Their hearts are filled with pride so that to sit under their teaching would be like walking over an unmarked grave, defiling anyone who would listen to them. 
They are responsible for the death of all the prophets whom their fathers had killed because they continue on in the same vein as their fathers. They not only do not have the key to eternal life that they thought they had, but they hinder anyone else from finding it. We saw all these things last week. So the opposition is seeking to catch Jesus in a slip of the tongue at the very least so that he might incriminate himself, so that they would have something to use against him. And this is taking place when all of these thousands of people gather together to the point that they're stepping upon one another. And as the crowds are pressing in and the Pharisees are seeking to stir them up against Jesus, we would understand if the disciples become a little bit fearful about being associated with him. It's something that will arise within them again later on when Jesus is arrested and they scatter. Jesus certainly detected their fear, so he forgets the crowds. His concern is for his disciples first. He's, they are his priority. And he begins to say to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now leaven, as you know, essentially yeast. It, it, in this case, the yeast would be a small piece of fermenting dough, which is put aside to be used in the fermentation of a fresh batch of dough at a later point. The law would not allow leaven to be placed in any bread that was to be offered to the Lord because it was a symbol of sin, going back to Leviticus chapter 2. Jesus is using that same imagery here. And he's warning his disciples to be aware of the teaching, the leaven of the Pharisees who follow after the traditions of men, which in turn corrupt and decay the minds of the people so that they no longer see the truth of God. So that they cannot even see the Messiah when he stands before them. Jesus has already warned his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees on a, an earlier occasion. We read of this in Mark chapter 7 when he says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. In another setting... Matthew relates to us in Matthew chapter 16. He warns the disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's what he's addressing here. The leaven of the Pharisees is what they teach that is not the word of God, but the tradition of men. And in our day, we know the world is full of churches and religious people who have set aside the teaching of Christ and replaced it with the teaching of men in order to accommodate their own sinful rebelliousness. And it looks as if they're getting away with this hypocrisy. 
But Jesus warns his disciples in his day, and it remains a warning to us in the present day, that night will become as day. That as we just saw in Psalm 73, no matter what it may appear to be to our eyes, God will not let sin go unpunished. God will deal with it. There is nothing covered up, verse 2, that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. The Pharisees were counting on that. This is what comes of hypocrisy. The Pharisees had developed a lifestyle of hypocrisy, hiding behind a variety of religious masks that all amounted to a life of insincerity and dishonesty and deception, not realizing that in the end, all of those masks would be ripped away. Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And all of those who have rejected Jesus as their Lord and Savior on earth must appear before the throne of God when Christ returns to judge. John describes that scene doesn't he, in Revelation chapter 20. It says, I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the Lord continues to warn his disciples, realizing that they too might become tempted to hide behind a mask, particularly during times of persecution and trial, because that's coming. Jesus was telling them over and over again, listen, if you're going to follow me, persecution is going to be what you experience. So Jesus goes on in verse 3 and says, accordingly... Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. David wrote in Psalm 139, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. What you have whispered in the inner rooms should be proclaimed upon the housetops. Paul spoke of this final judgment to the Romans when he said, On the day when God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That day is going to come. And as we were just looking this past Wednesday night in our study of Hebrews You come to that passage in Hebrews chapter 4 about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow and judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We spent a lot of time looking at that passage. And my conclusion in looking at that passage is that's not speaking about the written word of God. 
That's speaking about the incarnate word of God. That is Jesus Christ who judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The bottom line is there are no secrets in the sight of God. And there are really no secrets on earth. So the sins that are not dealt with here on earth will be dealt with in heaven before the one and only righteous judge, Jesus. This is what Asaph came to understand when he came into the sanctuary of God. I may not see God acting in judgment now. I may not even see it in my lifetime. But God is not confined to my lifetime. God has all eternity to bring about his judgment. Jesus' warning to his disciples was, don't be fooled by the hypocritical Pharisees and don't fool yourselves. Judgment will be rendered. Jesus was not only showing the disciples the ultimate outcome for the the hypocritical Pharisees, but he was also saying to them, make sure this isn't you. Be careful in your own life that you who are so quick to point out their mistakes are not consumed by the very sin that you are pointing out. And we know that there is at least one among the twelve who desperately needed to hear what Jesus was saying. Well, how do we survive in a hostile world. First, we are, be, we, we, be, we, we are aware of hypocrisy. Second, we remember the power of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The Lord warned his disciples that difficult and deadly days were ahead. Many powerful forces would begin to threaten their lives and the lives of their families. He would later tell his disciples in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we're told over and over again in the scripture that our flesh and blood bodies are designed only as temporary housing for our spirits in this physical and temporal world. Paul encouraged the Corinthians when he writes, We know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. So if they attack our bodies, we are not to fear that. Don't be unfaithful to Christ for the sake of an earthly tent, which will only turn back to dust. Don't throw him aside for fear of what will occur to that which is temporal. Later, Stephen would experience this persecution as he gave testimony to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the risen Messiah. And even as they spoke, they took him outside the city. And we read in Acts 7, they began stoning him. 
And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is having stones whipped at him. And through the entire event, he is conscious that the Lord is with him. Jesus wanted to encourage his disciples that their enemies are powerless against the spirit. The most they can do is kill the body and give it what the world would call an untimely death. And we know there's no such thing. Our death will come when the Lord sees fit to bring it about. But the most they can do is kill this body, which is, in any case, destined first for dust and then to glory. They can kill this body now. They won't be able to stop God from raising it on the final day. But in the light of this forthcoming persecution, he continues, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In contrast to the crowds of Jews who had a great fear of the power and position of the Pharisees, the Lord is telling the disciples there is only one whom they should fear. His father. Because it was the father who created hell for Satan and his angels. And if one wants to follow Satan and his angels and his disciples, the Pharisees, then the disciples were to know that God would cast them into the same place forever. In Revelation, that's what we're finding. Those who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus Christ will be cast into that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Peter says in 2 Peter 2, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So the primary thing to keep in mind, as Stephen did, is that a knowledge of the character of the Father, as Jesus was trying to reveal him to his disciples and to the nations, is a knowledge of the awesome and powerful God, who is not confined to what we experience as death. The fear of uh, the, the fear that, that Christ is speaking of in this passage is an attitude that we ought to have toward our Heavenly Father. An attitude that recognizes His greatness, His righteousness, His justice, and His power. It is fear in the sense of respect. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed, and note, God kills. God is sovereign. 
over life and death. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Fear him. Reverence him. This isn't the kind of fear that we read about in Revelation, when at the coming of Christ, unbelievers will be crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them, for they fear the Lamb. This is a fear that is harmonized with love. We love our Father. We love our Lord. We desire the Savior to come. And at the same time, we recognize we're dealing with God here. And so we do not treat him lightly. We do not treat him as our buddy. We treat him with reverence. In the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. How do you come before a God like that and treat him as your buddy? You come before a God like that and you fall on your face. And you cry out as Isaiah did, woe is me for I am ruined. That's the kind of respect and awe that our father necessitates. It does not cause us alarm because he is our father and we are his children. He has adopted us. He has loved us and he has poured his grace out upon us in Christ. But that knowledge is combined with the understanding of who he is. He is majestic and he is holy, just as he is loving and caring. There are many who have lost their vision of that awesomeness, their vision of the majesty and the the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, that needs to be recovered. Whenever any of his saints meet the one and only living God face to face, They will fall down on the ground with their hearts filled with reverence and humility. How do we survive in a hostile world? We beware hypocrisy. We remember the power of the one and only living God. And we recognize that if we are in Christ, we are not forgotten. Look at verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, first century Israel, everyone in the marketplace would have been familiar with the selling and consumption of sparrows. It was a delicacy in the time of our Lord. There are some things that uh, I'm glad change over time. 
My mouth has never watered at the thought of eating a sparrow, but such was the way. The Lord used this because it was a very familiar thing. He used this as an illustration because everybody would know what he was talking about. And he uses it to quench the fear within the disciples' hearts that once Jesus left them and the persecution upon Jesus' disciples began, they would be forgotten as quickly as five sparrows eaten in one meal. Yeah, that's the idea with food. You eat it and you forget it. Unless there's something really unusual about it. You may remember a particularly wonderful meal for a while, or a particularly horrible meal, but most of the time, you know, food is what keeps us going one day or the next. And it's not all that special. And if you ask me what I had last Friday, I have no idea. So the Lord's assuring his disciples that not even the most insignificant of, a meal, of meals, not even the in, most insignificant of God's creatures, lie outside the sphere of his care. They would never be forgotten. And in the light of the resurrection, the last words of our Lord to his disciples are applicable here. He told them, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You're never going to be without me. I am never going to forget you. Brothers and sisters, there is never a moment when you are not in the mind of Jesus. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. In times of peace or in times of persecution, keep in mind that you are in the hands of a loving, caring Father who will never forsake you and never forget you. No matter what is going on in your life, it is not happening because God has forgotten you. If he knows each and every sparrow that has ever been sold and eaten, and if he knows each and every hair on your head at any given time, then you are more valuable than any of these things. Just the math I find amazing there. He knows the number of hairs on my head. Before I get in the shower... And he knows how many hairs I lose by the time I get out of the shower. All those hairs down in the drain. They're counted. This is amazing. You were created in the image of God. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Lord as your Savior, then you have been given the right to become a child of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the result is that you are of eternal value, of eternal worth. 
And so God's care for us will never fail, not even in the hour of your death. He's not only willing to go to great lengths to save us, but he is the only one who understands who we are and what he has ordained for us in this hostile world. And he will care for us day by day until we are all gathered together with him in eternity. How do we survive in a hostile world? Beware of hypocrisy. Remember the power of God. Recognize that you are forgotten, that you are not forgotten. And beware of denying Jesus as the Christ. Remember who he's speaking to here. In this group of disciples, there's a guy named Judas. And he says in verse 8, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And the Lord is zeroing in here on the coming persecution and the reality that Judas and Peter are both among this group of disciples. He knew that the persecution would become life-threatening, and he wanted to warn all of his disciples in every generation, including us, that action taken on this earth has eternal consequences, either good or bad. When our Lord speaks of confessing, he means that when a man or woman agrees with God the Father that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, before men, then the Lord himself will agree with God the Father and acknowledge that we are the children of God before the angels in eternity at the great judgment seat, for our names will be written in the book of life. But he who denies me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. A better translation is, he who disowns me before men shall be utterly disowned before the angels of God. This isn't a passing failure like Peter. This is Judas. This is one who at one point mouthed the words of the profession that he has faith in Jesus. But it was not true. He lied. Maybe he lied to himself as well as to others, but he was lying. And the reality eventually comes out. There is that terrible story of Judas who denies Jesus as the Christ and then betrays him, hands him over to his enemies. Then there is the story of Peter who for a short time denied the Lord three times before enduring our Lord's trial. His life for those few days from a human perspective hung in the balance before he was willing to confess his sin and then was forgiven and restored by the risen Lord on the shores of the Sea of Galilee at the end of the Gospel of John. But there is that sobering passage in Matthew 25 where it says, But when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And what happens there when all the nations are gathered before him? Jesus separates them. Sheep on my right, goats on my left. And there is nothing that happens in that account that gives us any idea that the decision is just then being made. 
Jesus knows who his sheep are. And he knows who the goats are. And the Lord will reward the righteous ones with eternal life. Then he will turn to the ones who have rejected him as Messiah, and he will say, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. In Matthew 7, another sobering passage. Men come and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. Jesus says to them, I never knew you. And he is saying to us today, be careful. Eternity is in view. Don't think because you mouth some words that you stand in a right relationship with me. I call for discipleship, Jesus says. I call you to live for me, no matter what the cost. And everyone, verse 10, who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, we need to keep this in, in the context in which it was written so that we understand what's going on, what the Lord has in mind. In Matthew chapter 12, in Mark chapter 3, and what we've already seen in Luke chapter 11, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out the demon by the power of Satan rather than by the Spirit of God, these statements occur about blasphemy against the Son of Man or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is not just to speak a word, but it is rather the continuous and deliberate hardening of one's heart against him so that one becomes so callous to the truth that one can see Jesus himself standing before you performing miracles in the power of the Spirit, but you are so far gone that all you can see is Satan. That's why Jesus spoke of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus repeated over and over and over through his ministry, listen, I don't do anything on my own. Everything I say, everything I do, is because of the Father and the Spirit working in me. And that is how he was able, in his incarnation, to cast out that demon. Because of the power of the Spirit of God. And the Pharisees saw that, and they have become so hardened against him, that they confused the Son of Man with Satan. Those Pharisees, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, were rejecting the work and the person of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus Christ. Their hearts were becoming so hardened that they were not about to repent. And if someone will not confess and repent, there can be no forgiveness. And Jesus knew their hearts. He knew who they were. He knew they were not of his sheep. William Barclay, in his commentary on Luke, said this, God has not shut him out, but by his repeated refusals, he has shut himself out. That means that the one man who can never have committed the unforgivable sin is the man who fears that he has. For once a man has committed it, he is so dead to God 
that he is conscious of no sin at all. When the Spirit of God is sent to convict the world of sin, and men and women, in spite of all the evidence that is given, turn against that revelation, then they walk into that place where is the hardening of the heart. That is the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. How do we survive in a hostile world? Beware hypocrisy. Remember the power of God. Recognize that you are not forgotten. Beware of denying Jesus as the Christ. And don't worry. Verse 11 and 12 says this. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your, def- <clears throat> excuse me, in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. The Lord Jesus warned his disciples that there were difficult days ahead, not only for him, but for all of those who are going to follow him. One of the many classic examples is recorded for us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, an event that would take place within a year of this conversation. When Peter was arrested for healing a lame man at the temple gate and then preaching and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. He and John were arrested together in the middle of his sermon. He didn't even get to finish it. How rude. And the next day they were placed before the court and they were brought before the same court that condemned Jesus to death. The Sanhedrin. And the judges asked them, by what power or in what name have you done this? The healing. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus promises, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man... As to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, and which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times in one night. Do you know how to survive in a hostile world? Our Lord taught his disciples and all who were and are willing to confess him as their Lord and Savior, that we are, in fact, living in a hostile world that will continue to hate him and continue to hate his disciples in every generation until Jesus comes again. That is the situation in which we find ourselves. And so until he comes again as king of kings, beware of religious hypocrisy, Don't fear men instead of God, but trust in the power of God. 
Don't fear being forgotten because God never forgets his people. Beware of denying Jesus, though. Live your life as a disciple of Christ to prove your confession. And don't worry. When the trials come, God will grant the presence and the power and the wisdom and the comfort of his spirit. It is a hostile world. Jesus lost his physical life on the cross. Most of the apostles lost their physical lives as martyrs rather than deny Jesus as the Christ. Christians down through the centuries to this very day are losing their physical lives for the sake of Jesus. It happens every day. And it appears that on the surface, they really did not survive in a hostile world. But when we talk about surviving, what are we talking about? We're talking about persevering. They may take these lives. But if they take these lives and we die affirming Jesus as the Christ, then we have survived. We have made it to the end. We have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. Listen to these encouraging words from Peter. Written to suffering Christians in northern Turkey some 30 years after our Lord's resurrection and ascension. Peter is soon to lose his own physical life on a cross outside the walls of Rome during the reign of Nero. And he writes this. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, to you be dominion forever and ever. Father, may we be faithful disciples of Jesus. No matter what the world may say, no matter what the world may do, may we be found faithful to the end. Father, we beg of you, answer this prayer. As we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.